our ministry there. Father, we're, we're excited to see how uh, you will work uh, through our feeble hands um, in New York City and as our team uh, goes to serve uh, the Last Call Church there and to plant the seeds of the gospel. Um, we just thank you so f- uh, thank you up to this point of all, all, all that you have done to bring that together, to mobilize the, the Last Call Church, the members there, to hit the streets and to promote the, the, the Vocation Bible School. And, um, thank you for all the planning that our members have put in, all the hard work they've um, uh, put in to prepare for this. And now as we go uh, this, uh, later this afternoon, we pray for uh, safety and we pray for the children. Uh, you would protect the children throughout the week. Uh, we pray for the team that you would give us uh, hearts of joy and thanksgiving and faith in you and in all the mistakes and all the hiccups that we'll surely make. Uh, we will respond with um, just great attitudes, with humility. Uh, and, and to know that uh, uh, efforts for you, even the meager efforts for you, you will bless and, 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 and multiply. Uh, we pray for the teachers and the music and, the, and all the snacks and the crafts. Uh, we pray for uh, just the fellowship that the team will experience throughout the week. Uh, would it be a life-changing experience, experience for our team? Uh, to go out in faith, to go to a, uh, a neighborhood uh, we're not familiar with, uh, to leave the, the comfort and safety of, our, of, our, of Northern Virginia. Uh, we pray that uh, the gospel would be clearly proclaimed, uh, that uh, we would uh, uh, exemplify the gospel in our attitudes, and in, in our words, that the children there would see Christ in us. The parents who we get to meet, they would see Christ in us, and we pray that uh, many souls would be saved, that you would uh, draw many uh, lost souls to uh, the saving grace of God. And so, Father, at this time now, we pray for this, uh, this, this sermon, and uh, I confess my feebleness, I confess all my inabilities to even come close to the the worth of this of this text and um, I can preach this word a Lord but only you can change the the, the, the hearts of the hearers uh, that's out of my hands uh, and that's all up to you and so I pray for your spirit to take this word to plant it deep within us and to change our hearts and that we would begin to uh, stop boasting in uh, all, our, all our strengths, and instead we would boast in how, uh, how weak we are before you, so that Christ, his power, would fill our lives in great abundance. And so we just ask for your favor at this time, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you can open your text to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and I'll be, uh, we'll be studying verses 1 through 10.
2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 10 says this. It is necessary to boast, though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a, how such a man whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except in weaknesses, or if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth, but I refrain from this so that no one will consider me beyond what he sees in me or hears from me because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason to keep me from exalting myself there was given me a thorn in the flesh a messenger of Satan to torment me to keep me from exalting myself concerning this I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might leave me and he said to me my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions and hardships for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I first got saved about 20 years ago, uh, my church uh, had a, a short-term mission trip to Taipei, Taiwan. We were thinking about planning a church there, and so a team of about four or five of us uh, flew out all the way uh, to the island nation of Taiwan, where we spent about two weeks preaching the gospel. I was a young believer then. I was maybe uh, two, years, two years old in the faith. And one, one night I was uh, talking to my friend and, and I, I was boasting about my strength. Uh, for some reason, I don't know how it came about, I, I, I had the idea that I, could, that I had the ability to break down a door with my body. Uh, I don't know where I got it from. I, maybe I read it in some magazine somewhere or watched some show and I thought to myself, I can do that. So I was boasting that I could do that to my friend. I was like, yeah, I could, I could break down a door easily if it got locked or we needed to. And I kid you not, in God's providence, later that day or the next day, one of the, one, of the, one of the sisters there got locked in the bathroom for some reason. And the door was broken. And we're trying to get her out. And she's uh, helpless in this, in this bathroom. And then my friend looked at me and he said, hey, George, you know how to break open doors? And I, in the moment, I realized, oh, the, the, I regretted what I had said. I was tempted to come out and say to everybody, you know, I know I thought I could do it, but I, I don't think I could really do it. Uh, but instead of that, I looked at him and I said, sure. So I, 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 I never did this before. I didn't know the technique. And so I had a little practice kind of, you know, I kind of bumped into the door using a fourth of my strength and didn't budge. And it was a, it was a pretty thick door. I didn't know what happened. And so I said, okay, 
here goes. And I just rammed into the door, and lo and behold, the door swung right open. And I was surprised, but I, on my face, I had to pretend that I, was doing, I had done this all my life. But I learned a lesson um, that in that, in that, in that uh, mission trip that I needed to be more careful when boasting of my strength because sooner or later people will call you out and they'll ask you to prove just how strong you are. In today's passage, we will learn that not only should you be careful about boasting in your strength, you should actually be boasting in something else about yourself. And so this morning, we're going to consider the glorious boasting of a, of a loser. It might be helpful to know before we get into the text, Paul has founded the church in Corinth, and during his second missionary journey, recorded in Acts 18, spent the next year and a half ministering there, and Corinth was located in southern Greece in what was a Roman, a Roman province in the of 45 miles west of Athens. And due to the, the city's unique location, it was a major trade hub for most of the Mediterranean area. Uh, most of the Mediterranean area. The Isthmian Games, one of the two most famous, famous athletic events at that time, the other being the Olympic, Olympic Games, was also hosted by Corinth. And Corinth was a very wealthy city. It was a worldly city. It wasn't, it wasn't a moral city. Even by a pagan standard of its own culture, Corinth became so morally corrupt that its very name became synonymous with debauchery and moral depravity. The Corinthians came to represent gross immorality and drunken debauchery. After 18 months, Paul moved on to Ephesus where he received subsequent reports of trouble in the Corinthian church. There were divisions and factions among them. There was a, 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 a man sleeping with his, his mother-in-law. Uh, there was, and in addition to that, the Corinthians had written Paul a letter asking for clarifications on particular issues. And so Paul responded to all of this, writing the letter we know as 1 Corinthians. When Timothy got back to Ephesus, having delivered, having delivered 1 Corinthians, Paul was informed of even more problems, namely that false teachers had infiltrated the church and they began attacking Paul's character and his ministry. Paul, hearing the news, immediately went to Corinth, where he was not received very well by the church. Uh, and he was, while he was there, he was openly attacked and insulted, and none of the church members defended him. And so he returned. Paul returned to Ephesus saddened and discouraged. He, he wrote a letter known as the Severe Letter, not an inspired New Testament letter, but a letter nonetheless. And mentioned in 2 Corinthians 2.4, in the letter he rebukes, he admonishes the Corinthians for their sinful pride and their unrepentance. And Titus was sent to Corinth to deliver this personal letter from Paul. Paul waits. He's a, he eventually leaves Ephesus after the riot sparked by Demetrius in Acts 19. And then Paul goes on to Troas to wait for Titus to come to him to, to hear how the Corinthian church responded to this letter of admonition. He's so uh, anxious to hear the news, he, 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 he leaves a Troas, he goes to Macedonia to look for Titus, and when Titus meets him, uh, Paul learned that a majority of the church had repented. But Paul, he still knows there's this 
sizable minority against him in Corinth, and, and he's aware there's still false teachers in the Corinthian church, and so he's wise enough to realize that the, the, the entire church in Corinth was still in a precarious state of being, ready to return to their old patterns of sinful living. And so this is the context in which 2 Corinthians is written in. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes about the nature of the gospel. The false teachers were preaching a false gospel, a distorted gospel of Judaism. So Paul compares the nature of the old covenant with the surpassing glory of the new covenant. The Corinthians were waving, wavering in their commitment to help the poverty-stricken church in Jerusalem. So Paul writes to encourage them to, to stay the course. The false teachers are attacking Paul's apostleship, his character, his ministry. So Paul writes at the end of this letter primarily to defend his calling, to defend the nature of Christian ministry and service. And through this all, Paul helps us to understand the essence of Christian character and service. What kind of person must you be in order to experience all that God has for you in Christ? How can you live with more of Christ's power dwelling within you? How can you minister and serve as his servant with more of Christ's power uh, exuding from your, from your life and ministry? Paul in these verses gives us the essence of what kind of person you must be in order to have the fullest life and the most fruitful kind of ministry. In, Paul, in 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 10, Paul gives us two answers to all these questions. They are, number one, refuse to boast in your greatness. Refuse to boast in your greatness. And number two, regularly, uh, regular, regularly boast in your weaknesses. Uh, and that'll be found in the verses 7 through 10. Look at uh, point number one, verses 1 through 6. You must refuse to boast in your greatness. It is very natural for sinners to take pride in our personal strength. It's as natural as breathing air. It is as common as drinking water. So we, we, we take an assessment of what we are good at or what we own or possess. And then just after a few years of living, I, I see it in my, my young boys, we, we compare those things with others. And we compare whatever we have that's superior to other people. And it's in these strengths and in these advantages where our pride finds its fuel. We think about our unique skills, we think, our, we think our, about our unique talents, and we take comfort in all our finer attributes. And all this fans the flames of our self-esteem. And then we incorporate our perceived abilities into our self-identity. Our strengths, our, our, act, our positive attributes, our skills, they become part of our DNA. And then, and then we communicate somehow to others just how uh, superior we are because of our personal strengths. Uh, children just come right out and say it. They, they have no shame. They say, I'm the best. I'm the fastest. I'm the strongest. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the smartest person in my class. And when we become adults, boasting in our strengths and in our personal qualities, that doesn't change. We just get more clever at communicating that. So if you're a slim and muscular, sometimes you might wear tank tops and tight shirts to parade your fitness. If you're, if you're pretty and, and attractive, you dress in a way to let 
everybody know just how attractive you are. If you're educated and you're, and you're smart, you speak in ways and you, you use vocabulary to make sure others know just how intellectual you are. If you have lots of money, you, you drive uh, luxury cars, you wear gold watches to let people know just how successful you are. And Paul says uh, in chapter 11, he says in, to begin this, he says in verse, uh, uh, chapter 11, 18, he says, since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. Paul says this kind of boasting is according to the flesh. This pride we take in our, in our strength is inspired by our sinful natures. We boast in ourselves because it brings glory to ourselves. It magnifies us. It puts us on pedestals. In, verse, in the verse I just read to you, in verse 18, chapter 11, Paul is uh, specifically referring to the false teachers wreaking havoc within the Corinthian church. The false teachers, they wanted to gain a foothold within the church, and they did this by boasting according to the flesh. The false teachers were parading their spiritual pedigree. They were parading, they were boasting about their spiritual powers and their mystical experience experiences. And it was working in the Corinthian church because the Corinthians were still immature and they were still worldly. And when you're worldly and immature, you fall for this kind of bragging and self-aggrandizement. Chapter 12, 1 through 10 is the high point of an argument Paul began back in chapter 11, verse 1. And Paul, one New Testament calls this section, chapter 11 and chapter 12, of Paul's speech of a fool. This is his fool's speech. Starting from chapter 10, Paul began to defend his apostleship. The false teachers were telling the Corinthians that Paul was an idiot. He was a loser. He was a weak man. They were telling the church that Paul was a second-rate orator. And this was in a culture where your abilities as a public speaker, uh, if you were a philosopher or a religious teacher, this ability to speak well was the mark of authenticity and stature. And they told, they told everybody, Paul is a, is a horrible teacher, a preacher. And so starting from chapter 11, Paul, in order to defend himself, and in order to protect the spiritual lives of the Corinthian church, it begins to expound upon the topic of the foolishness of boasting. Since the Corinthians were so impressed by the boasting of these Paul teachers, Paul meets them where they're at. And so he says, in, back in chapter 11, verse 1, he says, okay, I, I'm going to be a, a little bit foolish too. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to begin boasting about my own credentials in, as well. So in the next 15 verses, Paul reminds them that the true gospel he delivered to them. He reminds them of the godly character that he displayed. And, and he expresses this dismay. He chides them for being on the verge of receiving a false gospel and being taken in by these false teachers. And he says in verse 5 of chapter 11, I consider myself in no way inferior to the most eminent apostles. Uh, this is, he's being sarcastic here. He, the, the, the most eminent apostles is, is a reference to the false 
uh, teachers, and he uses this term because uh, they were uh, they thought they were important. They they were uh, uh, self-advertising their prestige and their the superiority of, of Paul. And, and Paul says in in verse sixteen, okay, uh, again, no one let no let no one think me foolish. But if you do, receive me as foolish that I may also boast a little bit. Uh, okay, I'm going to play this game too. I'm going to be just as foolish as these uh, false teachers. And he says, verse 18, again, since many have boast according to the flesh, I, I, I'll boast also. Uh, verse 19, uh, for you being so wise are bearing the, foolish, this, bearing the foolish gladly. You love this kind of foolishness, so I'm going to play your game. You want my apostolic credentials? You, you want my resume? Okay, here I go. Verse Verse 22, are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are those false teachers, are they, are they Hebrews? Because the, these teachers, were, they were boasting in their, 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 their Jewishness. Paul says, okay, I'll, I'll match that too. Uh, are they Israelites? Well, well so am I. Uh, are they, uh, are they uh, ministers of Christ? Uh, so am, uh, 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 verse 23, I speak as if insane, I more so. I'm about to tell you how much more of a servant of Christ I am compared to somebody else. And that's kind of insane. That's like me saying, okay, next Sunday I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach a sermon of, on how, how, more, how, godlier than I, how godlier I am more than all of you. I'm going to list all the reasons why I'm godlier than you, why, why I'm more humble than you, why, why I'm less self-centered than you. I'm going to preach a series next month on why I'm the godliest pastor in the area. I'm going to compare how, 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 how more Christ-like I am to the, the rest of you. Paul said, this is insane. What, do I, what, am I, what, am, what I'm about to do to compare myself, to say I'm better than everybody else, is insane. And, and, and he was doing what the false teachers were doing. They were saying, they, they were saying, oh, I'm better than Paul because of X, Y, and Z. And, and he's, he's doing this to show just how foolish that game is. That's insane. And so from chapter, uh, uh, so in chapter 11, verses 23 through 29, Paul boasts about uh, how much more legitimate of a minister of Christ he is than these false teachers. And this is where he throws you for a loop. Because now you're expecting accolades and awards and degrees and, and how many people Paul led to Christ and how many books Paul wrote and how many YouTube followers he had. You're expecting him to go up uh, at this point, but instead Paul goes down. And instead of boasting in how great a man Paul was, Paul instead boasts in how much of a loser he was. Look at verse 23. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, in beatings without number, in frequent danger of death, Five times I received from the Jews forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I, I have spent in the, in the deep. Look at how weak I am. Look at how weak I am. And then verse 26, 
I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the desolate places, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brothers. Paul says, look at, look at how vulnerable I am. Look at how scared I am. Look at verse 27. I have been in labor and, and hardships and many sleepless nights, in starvation and thirst, often hungry and cold and without enough, without enough clothing. Now Paul says, look at how poor I am. Look at how penniless I am. Then in verse 28 and 29, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is made to stumble without my burning concern? Guys, look at how sensitive I am. Look at how emotional I am. And so Paul over and over says, I'm a loser. I'm a loser. Look at how great a loser that I am. And then Paul says in verse 30, if I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. If you're going to force me to boast, I am going to boast in how great a loser I am. Unless you think Paul is mocking his opponents by being sarcastic or being insincere in describing all of his sufferings and weaknesses, he takes an oath in verse 31 to, to, to tell him, to tell everybody, I, I'm not, I'm being very sincere about this. I am truly, I truly boast in my weaknesses. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I, I am not lying. I, I'm being serious. The, the, what I just said to you is evidence that I am a sincere servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you one more humility, humiliating experience. Verses 32 and th verses 33. Verse 33. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aratus the king was guarding the city of the Damascus in order to seize me, and I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall. Look at how much of a coward I am. This is what I boast in. And so when we get to chapter 12, this is the context uh, of the chapter 11 kind of uh, uh, informs us of what Paul is getting at in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 12. And, and in chapter 12, verse 1, Paul sings a different kind of tune than he was singing in the second half of chapter 11. He, yes, he sincerely boasted in all of his weaknesses, but now he's going to boast in something more in line with what the false apostles were boasting in. He says, listen, it is necessary to boast. What I'm about to say now, I have to do, though it is not profitable. Under normal circumstances, this wouldn't be of any, any help to anybody, but I, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Um, he's, he's saying this is necessary, and and, and, and he's going to tell you why he does this a, a little bit later, but for now, he's, he, he's saying, just bear with me a little bit. He needs to do this because the Corinthians, they're so, they're so enamored with these mystical visions and this, these mystical experiences of the false teachers. These, the Corinthian church, they just can't get over these spiritual experiences like the, the, the false teachers have lied about having and, and this is very familiar to us. There's, the books come out all the time. I, I was seven years old and I went to heaven. And everybody buys it. I mean, this is, this is, this is, a, this is a bestseller. 
This, this is what gets attention. This is what gets uh, accolades and influence. And so as one scholar said about the first six verses of chapter 12, he says it is not expedient to boast, but it might be even more inexpedient not to boast. And so Paul walks a tightrope in these first six verses. He threads the needle in these first six verses. And then in verse 2 he says, it continues on, and, and, and Paul writes, I know a man in Christ, and he's obviously speaking to him, uh, about himself, but he, 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 he refers to himself in kind of the third person in order to distance himself from this heavenly experience he is being forced to share. If he has to boast, he's going to do it in the least boastful way there is. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not per permitted to speak. You know, I, I, I kept quiet about this for 14 years. This is the first time I'm sharing this. I'm being forced to. This initially was between God and myself. Under ordinary circumstances, no good would come by me advertising that I went to the third heaven, the highest of heavens, to God's very throne room. Whether in the body or apart from the body, I, I don't know. Uh, he's contrasting uh, the false apostles who would detail line by line testimony of what heaven was like and who they met and what they did. But Paul here, in these first six verses, he does everything he can to downplay the experience. Verse 4, he said he heard inexpressible words. He, God forbade him to share those words, however. So Paul speaks of a re revelation without giving us what that revelation was. Verse 5, on behalf of such a man I will boast. If, if I was talking about somebody else, I would give you more details. But on my own behalf, I'm not going to elaborate. I'm not going to make much of it. I'm only going to boast. I'm only going to emphasize and accentuate my weaknesses. That's what I'm going to do. And then he says, if, verse 6, or if I did wish to boast, if I did elaborate on all these details, I wouldn't be foolish. I wouldn't be foolish like the false apostles because they're lying. If I did elaborate on all the details of what I experienced in heaven, I would be speaking the truth and nothing but the truth. But you know what? I refrain from this, verse 6, so that no one will consider me beyond what he sees in me or hears from me. In other words, he's saying the Christian life and Christian ministry, it's not about doing things or saying things that make us stand out from the rest. It's not about uh, communicating things about ourselves that would, that would somehow elevate, uh, elevate ourselves above others. Paul says, no, when you think of me, I just want you to think what kind of godly character the Holy Spirit is producing in my life. When you think of me, I just want you to evaluate me by the, the truthfulness of the gospel that I'm preaching to you. Even though I am an apostle, I, I don't want you to elevate me above yourselves because in Christ, I'm just like you. I'm carrying my cross just like all of you. And, and Paul is he's not saying in these verses that we need to repudiate every blessing that God has given us. No, we thank the Lord for all of our strength and all of our strengths and all, all of our capacities. 
Uh, we use them for his glory, but we don't make much of our personal advantages. We don't focus on them. We don't use those things to elevate ourselves above others. We don't brag about our blessings. We don't uh, somehow think that we deserve all of the gifts of God. They don't make us better than anybody or superior to anybody else. Know every good gift we receive from the Lord we thank Him for, but then at the end of the day, it's just between God and, and between us and God alone. We thank God for His blessings, but we don't boast in them. We don't say over and over, oh God, and He's, he's blessed me so much, and He's given me all these, uh, these talents and, and all, these, uh, all this, uh, this career advancement and, and all this money that I have, and did I tell you how blessed I am? And you're like, yeah, you've been telling me for the past six months, right? We, 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 we don't say, look, I, I talked to John MacArthur, and he just told me how great a preacher I am. Did, did he tell you that? No, he didn't. I'm sorry. Maybe one day he'll tell you, you're almost as good as me. And I, don't know, I, and I know we don't, we don't dare say things like that. We don't advertise it as obvious as my exaggerated examples, but we sure feel that way a lot of the time, don't we? We sure think that way a lot of the time. We walk around with this air of superiority and the way we despise others and the way we look down on people around us and treat them accordingly is the proof that we, we are constantly boasting in our strengths. We act superior to others because we think we're superior to others. We're constantly boasting in, uh, according to the flesh. And so point number one, Paul says, refuse, refuse to boast in your greatness. How can we experience the fullest life in Christ and have the most fruitful kind of Christian service and ministry? Number one, refuse to boast in your greatness. Number two, regularly boast in your weaknesses. Verses 7 through 10. On a regular basis, boast in your weaknesses. Don't hide them. Don't shy away from them. Admit them, confess them, boast in them. To the boasting of weaknesses that we just looked at at the second half of chapter 11 is, 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 is radically unique. When Paul was saying, I was beaten with rods, I was, I was, uh, uh, I was shipwrecked, I was, I was hungry, I was in danger, I was in labor, I had to escape like a coward in a basket through a window. Uh, I mean, who, who, who talks that way? Now we're kind of familiar with this kind of boasting. We've read 2 Corinthians 4. We live in a post-Christian culture where this humility is kind of a thing. But in the first century, there are no examples of secular literature of a person boasting in their weaknesses. And what Paul does here is just radical. If you were in the Corinthian church, hearing this letter publicly read to you the first time, you would be in shock. Like, who, who talks like this? Who thinks like this? This would be the very first time you've ever heard someone so prominent as the Apostle Paul debasing himself like this. And this kind of spirit, this kind of, this kind of heart is one of a kind. You don't regularly meet people like this. These kind of people don't exist in the world except in the church except followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Boasting in your strengths, 
that's as common as rain in Seattle or sunny days in California, but to, to on a regular basis boast in your weaknesses, it produces the kind of person that turns the world upside down. And Paul tells us how it does so in verses 7 through 10, and he, and he brings his fool's speech that he began in chapter 11, he brings it to a close. He now explains why he boasted in his weaknesses. Verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Why did Paul engage in this foolish boasting of a trip to heaven, which was the kind of the same foolish category of boasting that false teachers were engaged in? So when, when Paul talks about his experience, his journey to heaven in verses 1 through 6, he didn't do it because he was trying to, to match the miraculous wonders that false teachers were, were advertising about, their, about themselves. Paul didn't write this to, to be like, okay, well, that happened to you? Well, let, 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 let me tell you what happened to me. No, the primary reason Paul wrote what he wrote in verses 1 through 6 about this heavenly vision, this heavenly glory, he explains it in verse 7. He said, what happened to me in verses 1 through 6, it was, it was surpassing greatness. It was surpassing greatness. But it's the last kind of experience you want to boast in because if God had not intervened, that heavenly vision would have ruined me. If I had put my confidence in this heavenly vision, if I had made that part of my identity, it would have destroyed me. Because instead of exalting Christ, I would have been perpetually exalting myself. That kind of boast would have ended my ministry. It would have ended my calling. Paul says boasting in our strengths, boasting in our blessings, boasting in our personal advantages internally within the heart. That kind of, that kind of mental, emotional boasting is this spiritual boasting. Making all those things part of our self-identity, they don't build us up. They ruin us. They rob us of any kind of spiritual usefulness for the kingdom. Like his opponents falsely claimed, Paul had genuinely experienced visions and revelations of the Lord, but unlike them, he did not remain exalted. Paul shared what he shared in verses 1 through 6, not to prove he was just as good as his enemies, but to make the larger point that the number or kind of heavenly visions you have do not validate an apostle. They disqualify an apostle if that's all you get. Even a genuine trip to heaven disqualifies ministers of Christ if all that results from it is this exaltation of yourself. But God is faithful to Paul. He rescued Paul. And he rescued Paul by giving him, look at verse 7, it was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. I was rescued by God. I was delivered by God. I was saved by God. 
through this thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. The Greek word for torment here is used in the New Testament uh, to strike with the fist, to beat, to receive a beating, to be brutally treated. The word is used to describe the Roman soldiers beating the Lord Jesus on his way to the cross. And Paul doesn't tell us exactly what he was referring to by the term the thorn in the flesh. It could have been a physical malady, a, a disability, an illness, or it could have been a person or people like the Jews persecuted him. It could have been the Judaizers within the church attacking him throughout his ministry. Whatever it was, it made Paul very uncomfortable. It was, it was painful. It was, it was excruciating. It was so painful that Paul thought at first it was a curse that needed to be removed. Verse 8, concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might leave me. This thorn that God had sent to, to rescue Paul, Paul had mistakenly thought that God was trying to tear him down, try to tear him apart. That thorn stayed in Paul's side for probably 14 years. 14 years ago, he's still talking about the thorn presently within him. Think about this. As godly as Paul was, he needed this thorn. That prayer wasn't enough. More Bible reading wasn't enough for Paul. The ordinary means of grace wasn't enough from, for Paul to keep him from exalting himself. So great was this, was this spiritual privilege and experience that he had. He needed this thorn to torment him. He needed God-ordained suffering to rescue himself from destruction. And if this godly man like Paul needed that thorn, maybe we need our own thorns too. Paul says he pleaded to the Lord Jesus three times for him to remove the thorn from his life in verse 8. And Jesus' and Jesus's reply to him is, is given in verse 9. And he said to me, Jesus said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And Jesus' reply here is not only the climax of verses 1 through 10, not only the high point of, it, of the fool's speech that he began in chapter 11, in some ways it is the crescendo and pinnacle of the entire second letter to the Corinthians. In fact, there are a few places in the New Testament that encapsulate the entire Christian life and ministry in one statement, but this is one of them. He said to me, my grace, my grace, my grace is sufficient for you. Grace is a power of God that acts on us or in us to deliver us from the most hopeless of situations. Grace is a power that sustains us in our darkest hours. It is the power of Christ. It is Christ's very own patience. It is, it is his very own endurance and meekness and gentleness. It is the power of Jesus, his life exuding from within ourselves, displaying his character. The grace that, that, that Jesus gave Paul was Jesus' presence within him, radiating every fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. And this power is brought to completion, uh, it's made fully present, it's perfected in weakness, Jesus says in verse 9. Because of this thorn, Paul's weakness became the vehicle 
by which God's grace and Christ's power was most fully manifested. Christ's power reaches its zenith in our weaknesses. If Paul had boasted in his own strength, thinking that this heavenly vision made him equal to any task he was given, he would have canceled out the power of God in his life. And the phrase at the beginning of verse 9, and he has, and he has said to me, it's in the perfect tense. It describes an action begun in the past that continues in the present. And Paul's point by using the perfect tense is to say, what he said to me in the past, it's still true today. It's still a reality for me today. He uses the verbs sufficient for you, and then he uses the verb perfected with respect to God's grace and power. This is in the present tense. In other words, God's grace is always continuously present for you. His power is constantly, duratively, continuously working in and through all your weaknesses, if you allow him to. How did Jesus reply in verse 9, come to Paul anyways? Uh, was it through a, another dream, another vision? Did, he got, did Jesus speak to him audibly? Well, we're not sure, but it, it undoubtedly it came to Paul partly through the reflection of the gospel of the death and resurrection of Christ. You see, in that moment, as he, as he prayed three times, for God to remove the thorn. And in that moment when Jesus replied to him, Paul thought of the epitome of Christ's weakness shown at the cross. Paul considered the suffering of Christ. He considered the, his dying, his bleeding. He, he thought about uh, Jesus' nail-pierced hands and his feet. He considered Jesus bearing the wrath of God, and then Paul realized that in Christ's weakest moment, God was exercising his greatest salvation power. 1 Corinthians 1, 23-25 says, We preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the, who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The most powerful salvation of God was wrought in the most powerless crucified one. Jesus' Jesus death and resurrection power is then reproduced in our lives when we, when we, in our weakness, turn to Christ for strength. The cross becomes the paradigm of how God manifests his strength in our myriad of weaknesses. God's power through Christ's weakness and death by crucifixion showed up in full force in the crucifixion of Paul's inflated pride by means of a thorn. And this is how the fullness of God's power shows up in our lives as well. If you have a thorn in your flesh, and if you've asked God to remove it and he has it, then we kiss the thorn because of what God is intending for it to do in your life. We embrace the thorn. We embrace the, the thorns, plural. We revel in our weaknesses. And then in verse 9 and 10, Paul says, he uses the word therefore twice. 
And it, and it signals Paul's two responses to the Lord's reply to him. First, Paul says in the middle of verse 9, Most gladly, therefore, most gladly, therefore, if the thorn in my flesh is the instrument of the fullest measure of Christ's grace and power in my life, if at the rock bottom of my life I can have the fullest access to all of what Christ himself possesses, then most gladly, then with fullest joy, then with unfettered happiness will I boast in all my weaknesses and in, in all my failures and in all my creaturely limitations. Because it's only when we come to the rock bottom of ourselves can we have all of Christ's power dwelling within us. You see, when people in circumstances appear to have all power and all control over your life, it's in these moments where we have this free access to the grace and power of Christ. Spiritual flashiness, loud worship music, heavenly ecstasy, over-the-top over emotionalism, this intense euphoria. I'm not saying all of that is completely bad. But it is not the sign of divine power. The reality is otherwise. Christ draws near to us and he gives us his grace and power only when we are boasting in our weaknesses. Only when we are boasting at the rock bottom of our lives do we have the, the opportunity to experience divine power. You see, when we're boasting in all of our weaknesses, we are boasting in what? Nothing. And it is this kind of boasting that ironically humbles us. Why was Paul better than the false teachers? Verse 11, I have become foolish, you yourselves compelled me, for I ought to have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, apostles, even if I am nothing. Paul says, I'm not inferior to them because I know I'm nothing. Because only when we're nothing before others and to God can Christ become our all in all. Paul gives a second therefore in verse 10. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions and hardships. If I can have full access to the power of Christ, then I am well content with all of it. With all of the tough times, with all of my limitations, I am satisfied with those things. If I can have all of Jesus at the, at the gutter of my life, in the most difficult moments, in my darkest times, then I will make my home there. I will be content there. Why? Verse 10. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. This is, this is really important for us to understand. Paul does not mean that weakness is power. 
He doesn't want us to think that weakness equals power. Rather, he means weakness becomes the context for Christ to manifest his power in us. Our weaknesses and limitations become the place and the occasion for God to manifest power in Christ. The fullness of Christ's strength doesn't appear automatically when we're weak. Rather, our weaknesses create the best conditions for turning to Christ in utter helpless dependence. In other words, sometimes in our weaknesses, we can be so spiritually foolish and stubborn that we still refuse to turn to Jesus in our darkest hours. Weaknesses do not automatically translate into the strength and power and grace of Christ. Our weaknesses rather simply make it easiest for us to exercise our will and turn to Christ. Our weaknesses are golden opportunities to experience the power of Christ. And we waste them all the time. Paul's whole apostolic ministry could be summed up in weakness. This was his boast. This was the secret of his success. He would rather glory in his infirmities than in his greatest personal strengths because he knew that we are most powerful in Christ when we are the least reliant on our own resources. Many illusions of our own abilities make us easily overlook and forget the divine riches of power abundantly available in Christ. I thank God for all the different ways God is growing our church. We have much to be thankful for. All of you here bless me in so many ways. And yet we have a lot of areas to grow in. But let's, let's be really clear at the close of our time. Let's be really clear about our biggest problem. It's not because we need more ideas. It's not because we don't have enough resources. It's not because we're not smart enough or clever enough or talented enough. Our biggest problem in cross life is that all of us, me included, we're just too strong. You think you're too gifted. You, you think you're too talented. You, you trust in your experience too much. You, you depend on your abilities and your talent and your, and your personality too much. You, you're too proud about what all that you know. You think God actually needs you. That's our biggest problem. So if our biggest problem is that we're too strong, then in light of today's passage, it's pretty obvious where our church's biggest need is. We need more weak people. We need more weak people. All of us here, instead of going up, we must go down. We need more thorns. We need to feel those thorns more sharply. We need to allow those thorns to press in us 
in pain until we turn to Christ for all power and grace and strength. In today's word, God is making it clear that he is looking for more weak people who know that strength from heaven comes through the glorious boasting of losers. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this passage calls for a, a confession prayer. It calls for a confession of sin. We ask you to, to forgive us for boasting in our strength, for thinking so highly of ourselves. We realize just how foolish it is to hide our weaknesses before others, before you, to pretend we don't have them. In light of this passage, how, how utterly foolish that is. When the pathway to power and strength is not just through recognizing our weaknesses and, 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 and admitting our weaknesses, boasting in them. It's boasting in them. And so, Father, we pray you would raise up more weak people here. You would, pray, you, you would help us go down instead of up. And that when the thorns come, that we wouldn't run away from them. We wouldn't complain about them. We wouldn't get angry about them. We would rejoice. We would boast in them. We would be well content with all those thorns. Father, help us to, to know that when we are weak, then we are strong. We pray this in Jesus' name.